0: bringing you unique perspectives from inside the world of addiction and mental health recovery. This is Recovery Unscripted.
1: Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Recovery Unscripted, a podcast powered by Foundations Recovery Network. I'm David Kondos and today's guest is Jordan Weissman, who serves as clinical manager with the Michaels House Treatment Program in Palm Springs, California. He sat down with me at the Innovations and in Recovery Conference in San Diego to talk about how they take a deep dive into their outcomes data to look for trends that are hiding in the details and adjust accordingly. Also he shares how Michael's House integrates nicotine cessation resources right alongside other addiction treatment elements and explains what the statistics say about how smoking and quitting can affect recovery from other substances. Now here's Jordan.
2: With Jordan Weissman. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Let's start by having you tell us a little bit about your personal story
0: and uh, kind of the journey you took to doing what you're doing today. So, uh, I kind of knew from an early age that I wanted to be a therapist, but my vision of what that was at a young age versus what that looks like today is very different. What were you thinking about it as at an early age? Oh, at, at an early age, you know, I thought, okay, I'll be one of these shrinks with a nice uh, office, private practice, couch, couch, and as I was going through uh, my undergrad and graduate programs, I was thinking, yeah, that's, that's probably where I'll end up. And there was an academic advisor somewhere along the way that said, I think you ought to do a, an internship at a, at a hospital, you should get some inpatient experience. And I sort of arrogantly looked at her and I said, lady, I'm never going to work inpatient. Oddly enough, it's now like my life's work. Uh, Since taking that internship, uh, it really changed the trajectory of my career. What was it about that that kind of opened your eyes to to, this is what you wanted to do? Well, it was one of those things where I didn't really realize that that kind of work existed. I, I think it was just in the first couple of weeks. I started looking around the hospital going, oh, like I'm home now. I think what it is for me is seeing the progression of how chaotic somebody's life can be and in such a short time move to to a place of relative stability um, while still, obviously, they need more work after they leave. But you see a big difference. You see a huge difference in such a short time. I think that had a really powerful impact on me. Yeah, yeah. Now you're serving as the clinical manager? Yeah, that's correct. I'm the clinical manager for the Men's Center at Michael's House, which is a Sixty-bed residential men's facility.
2: Okay, cool. And uh, could you uh, kind of unpack uh, what that role entails? Like the the clinical manager. What uh, what does that look like for you? I think
0: one of the fun things about it is that there's no two days that are the same. So uh, I provide individual supervision for the treatment team, sort of oversee the program from kind of a thirty thousand foot view.
2: I know that Foundations prides itself a lot on doing research, uh, looking at uh, real, real world uh, outcomes of the patients. What are some ways that Michael's House gets into that kind of before, uh,
0: during and after the treatment? We are constantly taking surveys and we're constantly looking at data. Uh, and that for me is kind of a lot of fun. Again, it's one of those things that I didn't really realize that that could be part of the job of a psychologist to take a look at all of this data. and make adjustments to the program to have a to have an impact. One of those things that we looked at early on after I got there, me and some of my colleagues would be in these meetings where we we're reviewing metrics. Sometimes it's looking at patient satisfaction and all of those things, all of which we look at and and survey to death. One of the things that we looked at was ACA rates, patients leaving treatment early. And we found ourselves kind of asking these odd questions, like in a 538 kind of way of going how old are these people and uh, where did they come from? What's their educational background? And for people who don't know,
2: 538
0: is kind of a uh, political sports like data. It's like data driven journalism, right? So me and a, and a couple of other colleagues, we've kept asking these things in these meetings. And I think people got tired of answering our questions and sort of said, why don't you just do this? So we've turned that into this effort to just constantly be looking at our ACA's, kind of bringing the number to life, right? Telling the story behind this person left on this day. So we would look at things like what day of the week were they leaving on? And what was their secondary drug of choice? What was their psychiatric diagnosis? Were they here on an intervention? And looking at ways in which we can adjust the program, adjust what kinds of interventions were happening on what day to make an impact on the patients leaving treatment early. And just that sort of constant attention to it, we've dropped our ACA rate significantly over the last five years. We're well under 10%, which is under the national average for patients leaving any kind of inpatient treatment early. Do you have an example of like something that you you saw and then you made a change and then you saw some of that improvement? Yeah. So we were noticing that the young uh, opiate dependent patient, so young meaning somewhere between 18 and Thirty-ish, They were the ones that were leaving early. Uh, we went back to the docs and said, is this at all related to our detox protocols? Could these patients still be detoxing or are they in such acute withdrawal? When this is happening, do we need to adjust
2: how it is that we're detoxing the opiate patients? And so they, they must have been leaving pretty early in the process if you were looking
0: at detox? They were. You know, uh, all of our facilities are licensed for detox. Though we like to detox people separately so that they can feel more comfortable in the residential program. So that's the stabilization center. Yeah, that's our stabilization center. And we were taking a look at those things and, and the medical team went back to the drawing board, said, let's make some adjustments to these detox protocols. Let's make adjustments to when it is that we're transferring patients. Transferring them into the residential. Transferring them to the residential program. Letting the families know that this patient kind of falls into a high risk for leaving treatment early. Let's tell the patient that they're kind of a high risk for leaving early. Let's give everybody the information based on what we've been seeing. And for the first time, I think it was last year, our opiate dependent patient wasn't our main person that was leaving treatment early. It had shifted fairly dramatically as our ACA rate overall was dropping. Now the the primary person that was leaving early was a early 40s alcoholic. And we were seeing, too, that when they left ACA, they were leaving much later in the process than the uh, than the opiate it's person. It's kind of a totally different thing. It was a completely different thing, so that stuff is fun to kind of constantly look at and we review it every month and it was just one of those things that was like hey that's kind of interesting let's let's look at it
2: yeah I, I love that kind of stuff because you can I mean you're, you're working there every day so you can make your own kind of assumptions about trends and like kind of what you're generally seeing but that like the data really doesn't lie and so that that can that can tell you
0: what's really going on yeah you can have those things where you go well I think it's this I think it's this and then you can take a look at the data and go well No, that's not actually what's happening.
2: Uh, at the conference. Uh, You also gave a presentation about uh, nicotine cessation in a residential setting, such as you have at Michael's house. Smoking in general is pretty common among the people who are in recovery, uh, especially. So I imagine there's kind of some skepticism out there or or people who think that maybe that's not as big of a deal. Like, I guess, how do you respond to that? Do you you see some of that?
0: Yeah. I mean, when we started this effort, it was a group of people who Either were non-smokers themselves or people in recovery from nicotine as well that were just like, why aren't we making more of an effort? And over and over, we were finding there's resistance from any number of levels. You talk to any treatment center, you go, well, it's too hard to quit smoking while you're in treatment. Let's focus on the really important stuff, right? And some of the stats are just really sad one of the stats that I read was 50% of people who have received treatment for alcohol, for example, right? 50% of them are going to die from a smoking related illness. It's so sad because they've already gone through, they've made this significant change in their life. They probably feel pretty damn good about themselves. And yet because they haven't addressed smoking, they still end up dying from an addiction related disease. And so a, a small group of us got together. We started looking at more and more research finding that it's more of a belief that we have that you can't quit smoking while in treatment. It's too hard or that it might take away from the treatment of you know the opiates or the alcohol or the benzos because, well, now we're also focusing on this little smoking thing um, or people get really stressed from being away from smoking. So it's a distraction from the, the real primary focus here. And the research just didn't bear that out. That was more on the industry going, yeah, this is too much to do. Let's let's tell them to do that later. Uh, but the data is showing that it's considered endemic. It's as high as 75% of people in treatment are smoking. That's an unbelievable
2: number. And and just from a healthcare perspective, that's a missed opportunity if you're not
0: addressing that with them while you have them there. It's a huge missed opportunity. You know, I, I talk about this idea of cognitive dissonance. It's a really old concept in psychology, but that idea that my actions really aren't matching my beliefs. I think that people who are entering recovery should do healthy things. My program is also gonna go buy them cigarettes so that they feel better about the treatment that they're having, right? And and that was the collective feeling that this this work group had. We didn't wanna reinvent the wheel when it came to smoking. Research bears out there's no gold standard for quitting smoking, meaning there's no one path to take. Right. You know, if you have an infection, you take an antibiotic. There isn't that for smoking, at least yet. You know, most people choose to do some amount of nicotine replacement and then some community or other kinds of support. So we said we wanted to reduce any barrier to entry, even if they're not taking any medication or anything. They go into our nursing stations to have their vitals checked every day. So we made these really simple folders and a really simple goal setting form, right? A patient just fills it out and uh, we sort of modified a form that our nursing department was already using for blood sugar monitoring. We took that form and we changed it to how many cigarettes, what were your cravings the previous day, and the patient signs it so they're interacting with it every day. On the very top of the page, it shows their baseline. I was smoking a pack a day. And every day they get to just look at it without judgment in the same way that they look at their blood sugar. This is what your blood sugar is right now. This is how many cigarettes I smoked today. So just really simple, but a way that they could interact with a nursing professional on a daily basis about their smoking. And these packets that we give them have just publicly available aids to help quit smoking. Again, we, we didn't wanna be so arrogant to say like, oh, we're gonna cure smoking for the whole world. There's already really great stuff out there. There's 1-800-NO-BUTTS and the American Cancer Society and insurance companies, private insurance companies on their own websites had these support tools for quitting smoking. So we said, let's gather as much of that free and publicly available stuff and give those resources out. Don't make the patient go search for it. Here it is in a little folder. And so that's how you enroll in the program is they can go to any staff member because we trained up everybody. The only thing you have to do to enroll is say, I want to quit smoking. That puts it into the patient's treatment plan. And so we gave it some weight. It said, you know, quitting smoking is really important.
2: We talked about a lot of research regarding the, you know, nicotine cessation. Is there some research that's saying abstaining from nicotine or these type of programs can affect someone's sobriety in general,
0: like for the long term? Yeah, that's a good question. So, talk on Monday. I drew some parallels to the opioid crisis because that's on everybody's mind. You know, the opioid crisis, by conservative estimates. It's killing somewhere around 50,000 people a year, which is a lot. By uh, other estimates, it's as high as 70,000 people a year. And part of the motivation in creating this program in the first place was smoking-related illnesses kill almost half a million people a year. Right? It's like 1,200 people a day. The thing is, is that no one's talking about it. Um, So that was, again, kind of the motivation for it. And then the research bears out that not only does it not have any effect on a patient's ability to quit their primary drug, they have a higher chance of, of remaining sober long term from their drug of choice if they quit smoking while they're in treatment. Really? Yeah, like a lot more. Estimates are somewhere between... 20 to 50% more likely to be sober at long term follow up and that's like a year out if they attempt to quit smoking while they do their primary drug treatment I guess why do you think that is there's research behind this too smoking in and of itself is its own relapse trigger for using and really it's simple behavioral training if you look at what most people are doing while they're also doing their drug of choice it's usually smoking yeah so it has that connection in their brain already right and it's not oh i'm i'm drinking so i'm a little Uh, I have a little less impulse control so I'm just gonna start smoking it's I'm smoking and I've paired it so much my brain can't help but start to think of it that path is so deeply carved that smoking
2: is the trigger for the relapse yeah you need to tell your brain that smoking is a separate thing
0: because it's it's so uh, linked yeah and so some of the things that we do to kind of create that dissonance with our patients is when they transfer over to our men's program during the tour there's usually at least one or two staff of as we're walking around hey this is this is where the bed is this is where the the cubbies are this is the main group room hey by the way do you feel like are you a smoker do you have any desire to quit and most people actually do the numbers kind of bear that out that most people want to quit
2: but i guess because maybe they're they've just decided to make this major change in their life. And so
0: it kind of kind of flows in with that that trajectory. Yeah, they uh, because we're asking now, we weren't asking before. But the research kept telling us, no, most people want to quit, even though most people in treatment are smoking. 70% of the population of smokers want at any given time wants to quit. So we should just ask them because we just weren't asking them before. And I think that a lot of treatment centers are probably like that. we go, all right, great. You're quitting heroin. That's awesome. Here's your bed. And uh, do you need any more cigarettes?
2: Looking at it from a more overall treatment level, I guess, what are some obstacles to implementing this type of nicotine cessation
0: program as part of a substance use program? You know, even just sort of we're not a smoke-free facility and a lot of and a lot of places aren't but sometimes that idea can kind of carry through like because we offer this that we must be a smoke-free facility and we're not but so I went to the patients that were currently at our houses as we were doing this and while it wasn't a formal poll by any means I gathered the entire community and I was asking them how many of you were smoking and just like the research showed like most of the hands went up in the room How many of you may may be interested in quitting at some point? And most of those smokers' hands went up. How many of you are trying to quit? Hardly anybody, right? And then I asked a question that I was expecting a very different answer. I said, if we were a smoke-free facility, and then I was like, don't worry, we're not, and we don't have any plans to, but if we were a smoke-free facility, would that prevent you from choosing us? Maybe one or two hands. Uh, Most of them said that if we were a smoke-free facility, that that we would still go, and that tells me if our program is good enough on its own merits, then smoking doesn't really have anything to do with patient attendance. That's not as big of a factor as you might have thought it was. No, and in fact, it didn't seem to impact ACA rates, it's it seems to be making a difference, and that's making us happy.
2: Yeah, man, definitely. And so, uh, for someone out there who's listening, who is maybe interested in pursuing this, or, or they, you know, they work at a treatment program and they and they want to, you know, maybe try to bring this up at some point in the future. What are some tips you would give them for kind of overcoming those obstacles and then building a
0: program and maintaining a program? Um, I would say, don't reinvent the wheel. There's a lot of really great resources out there already. Train your staff. Staff training is so important with any new initiative. Provide that education so that uh, the staff can sort of free themselves of biases. Right. And, and to get that buy-in on this is an important right. program that we're, that we're offering. And, you know, some interesting stuff for us has come out with that. I mentioned him in my talk. His position at Michael's house is called a clinical coordinator. It's sort of this jack-of-all-trades guy. Uh, he was diagnosed with lung cancer as a direct result of smoking for so long. And so I was working on this project and he was helping me do the research. But prior to his diagnosis, he was still smoking and all of that. And I could see sort of that uncomfortable feeling around it. So then he receives his diagnosis turns out to be really bad and he came back and he has been our strongest and most powerful advocate for this program as have other staff that we currently have who are in their own change process around smoking. So we found that like, you know, by giving the education to the staff, they don't have to feel like a fraud by saying that you should quit smoking because it's bad for you because they know themselves it's bad and they're, they're also trying to change. We don't say that, well, if you're smoking, you can't enroll anybody. No, the important thing is that everybody can enroll the patient in the program.
2: And with the nicotine cessation program uh,
0: specifically, do you have some results, some, some kind of hard data about about how that's working? As a kind of a back-end consequence of putting that form together where the patients are interacting with their program every day, it tallies up the number of cigarettes that they smoked in the previous day. We ask them about how strong their cravings were. And basically what we were finding is that the longer that somebody was actively enrolled in our program, that... Uh, on average people were smoking about 16 cigarettes a day. It's a little less than a ha- That's a little less than a pack and We were finding that by 20 days or more enrolled in the program They were smoking less than five cigarettes a day and their cravings on a five scale were under two And that's just from starting the program for 20 days, you said? Yeah, so if they were in the program 20 days or more, and it was showing that across multiple days. So we averaged, all right, what were they doing just on day one of the program? And one day enrolled in it, already dropped it like four cigarettes. Really? So just kind of taking that step, making that decision, making that a part of the the program, like mentally. Right. Like, I'm quitting smoking, so I'm going to smoke fewer. Uh, But the longer that someone was there, um, they were more likely to be properly using um, nicotine replacement, where when they started, maybe only about 20% were using nicotine replacement, close to 70% towards the end. But they were also smoking way, way fewer cigarettes. Their average cravings really early in the program were three out of five, four out of five. By the end, they're down at like one and a half, 1.6, something like that. At the beginning, 30% of people were compliant with using their medication. They became more medication compliant somewhere in the mid 60s, in terms of their medication compliance, if it's prescribed to them. So just by this really, I, I call it like a soft touch program, but just by offering it, the patients took it and ran and they really were smoking way fewer cigarettes. So that made us feel pretty good. Cool. All right. Well, uh,
2: just have one last question. Everyone who, who serves in this field uh, devotes their time to, to getting up every morning uh, to further the cause of recovery has their own reasons for doing that. So could we end by having you uh, kind of sum up why uh, helping people find lasting sobriety in all ways, even when nicotine is so important to you? Um,
0: there were powerful influences on me from a very young age, and I've seen people's struggles i've seen people's triumphs Um, i've seen the power of inpatient and residential treatment to make profound changes in a really short period of time and that you know sort of selfishly makes me feel good about the work that i do uh, to help people get better to help people feel better substance use and mental illness touches everybody's lives whether we're talking about it or not and certainly that's been the case for me um, across multiple generations. All right, well,
2: Jordan, thank you so much for your time and for, for sharing all that with us. Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks again to Jordan for joining us. Now I get to introduce another installment of our ongoing segment called Minute of Mindfulness. Together, we'll take the next 60 seconds to slow down, take a deep breath, and focus on this present moment. As always, I'll open things up with an inspirational quote, and then I'll rejoin you to close out the episode. Today's quote comes from writer, conservationist, and 26th President of the United States, Theodore Roosevelt, who said, Believe you can, and you're halfway there. This has been the Recovery Unscripted Podcast. Today we've heard from Jordan Weissman of Michael's House. If you'd like to talk with an admissions coordinator about the treatment options at Michael's House and other foundation's programs, please call anytime at 855-823-2141. See you next time.